0: Welcome, everyone. This is the Concrete Conservative, Mac on the Rock, putting on a new hat, uh, Statues and Stories, with my amigo, Adam Levinson, 2020. Is that, is, do I call you Adam 2020 now?
1: <laughs> That's good, man. Yeah, I appreciate that. And, uh, I, I also appreciate the uh, you know the, the friendship. So uh, the year's off to a good start, and I'm going to joke with you that we're not going to see a repetition of digits like that uh, in the year um, until 3030. So that'll be far into the future.
0: So that means this is the year we have to actually write all four digits because someone can falsify the dates. If you put just 20, someone can change the date on you. So, folks, when you write your checks for this whole year, you actually have to put 2020. You can't just put 20 because someone will add one nine to it or, you know what I mean? So, How are you, my friend? What's up with religious freedom in the nation? I think that's going to be our topic today. And have at it.
1: Right, so I think it's an interesting and a topical subject because there have been some issues going on in New York uh, with regard to uh, religious attacks, uh, but uh, that's not the reason why we're covering the subject today. What we want to do today is talk about the history because we have a wonderful history in America uh, over time of religious toleration, so we're going to give some of that background. And a lot of this we've we've touched on indirectly in other radio shows. So today we're going to do the history of religious freedom, and people are very familiar with the First Amendment, and people are very familiar with uh, some of the background but we're going to go into the weeds and into the detail. Um, and then the hope is that next week we can continue the conversation about Florida, because Florida also has a very interesting history about religious toleration and religious liberty, because Florida was not always an American state. You know, it came in in the 18... Its Constitution, not to get ahead of ourselves, was written in 1838, and it came in, in 1845. So Florida has an interesting history we'll talk about next week if, if we have an opportunity. And I'll, I'll warn everybody, and I say this smiling with a, a, a smile on my face, that uh, I'm not an expert on religion, but I think it's useful to do a little bit of background about uh, some of the religious differences just so that it makes sense when we talk about the legal protections. So saying that, let's jump into a conversation about Maybe later we can talk about the Jewish diaspora because that's my background. Uh, but to, to begin by talking about, uh, you know, at the, the year zero when Jesus Christ was around, there was uh, there was one Christianity. There were no religious differences among Christians, right? There might be religious differences with Romans, and that's a whole separate conversation for another night. But uh, for the first thousand years of Christian history, more or less, and I'm oversimplifying, there was one church. Uh, But then, and I'm going to give terminology today, there was what was referred to as the Great Schism, and approximately in the year 1050, you had uh, the Eastern Orthodox Church, and you had the Roman Catholic Church. So that's the first time you get this divide between Eastern Orthodox on the right or on the east side, out of Constantinople, and there Greek is the language, versus the Roman Catholic Church, which is where Latin is spoken. Uh, Then you have a period following the Great Schism, where there are the various crusades. And And a lot of burning of the of
0: the, uh, the Old Testament. Bible.
1: So uh, you may know more about that than I do, but I'm, I'm just laying a little bit of background that uh, you know, there became religious differences among Christians, the Eastern Orthodox Church, which had its own pope, and in, in Rome and Italy, obviously, in the Vatican, as the Roman Catholic Church. So that's uh, approximately 1054. And then we're going to skip ahead now to the Protestant Reformation. And the reason to talk about the Protestant Reformation is to understand there are different Protestant denominations compared to the Catholic Church, and that's where you're going to start to see these religious differences as that gets transplanted into America. And I wouldn't be surprised if you asked me how the pilgrims fit into that. So the Protestant Reformation, this is the 16th century, and the year that stands out is the year 1517, and uh, not to bog down in all the dates, but to give a little bit of background. So Martin Luther, who was the first Protestant, if you will, uh, famously posts his 95 theses, or his, his and he wants to start off a conversation, uh, and this is in the, the church in Germany, uh, in Wittenberg. He was a professor and he was a monk, as I understand it, at that church. And and we could talk about what indulgences are, but he's starting a conversation about, and then the background for him was that uh, there was a fundraising campaign, because they wanted the Pope, the Pope wanted to renovate St. Paul's Basilica, they needed money, so in, in connection with that fundraising campaign and the sale of indulgences, uh, Martin Luther didn't like some of what was happening, and he wants to sort of uh, purify and then give his objections, which are his theses that he, he nails to the door uh, to the Wittenberg Church, uh, which I believe was also an institution or a college, monastery, etc. So that starts off the Protestant Reformation, and then over time you start seeing the Protestant Reformation spread into uh, the Swiss territory, 1519, you have the Swiss Reformation instead of just in Germany, uh, then those are Calvinists in Switzerland, John Calvin, Uh, then the the Reformation spreads into uh, the Presbyterian denominations in Scotland, also become Protestants, and a lot of this has to do with uh, political differences, and again, don't pretend to be a religious expert, but with different Princes in different areas uh, could assert their independence uh, by choosing a particular denomination, and that gets into the weeds. Of uh, you had a 30-year war that resulted, uh, which ended with the uh, Treaty of Westphalia, and it was fairly bloody. About 20% of the population of Europe, according to some estimates, was killed during these religious wars, uh, which followed the Protestant Reformation, with Catholics against Protestants, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. I'll point out to you, because you might ask the question, what happened to Martin Luther? And it's interesting when you look at social history, that uh, there were certain things that had to come together for there to be a Protestant Reformation, one of which was the Bible being published. And one of the things that uh, Martin Luther does, the Gutenberg or Gutenberg Bible had been published in 1450, so this is about 7, uh, 15, 1450 to 1517, that's about uh, 67 years. So 67 years before Martin Luther posts his theses in the church in Wittenberg, you had to First Bible that was available, it was still very expensive, so it wasn 't popularly available, but it was at least becoming available uh, so what does the Pope do Pope Leo X uh, when he hears about uh, you know Martin Luther gets excommunicated by the, the, the church in fifteen twenty one and he sort of goes into hiding and Charles V, who was the Holy Roman Emperor, so this is uh, one of the political leaders of Europe, he issues an edict of worms giving permission to kill Martin Luther, so Martin Luther is sort of rescued by Prince. Frederick, who became a Protestant prince. And during his period of of being in hiding, Martin Luther does a lot of writing and he translates the Bible, instead of just being in Latin, he translates it into German, so that the average German person can read the Bible in uh, in a language, which is the parlance in Germany. Uh, So that's what Martin Luther does. He then later publishes the Bible, uh, not just the New Testament, but also the Old Testament. So he spends a lot of time uh, publishing and making the Bible available, which fits in nicely with some of the Protestant uh, beliefs about people being able to read the Bible. Uh, you would point out to me, Manny, that if we didn't talk about England, we'd be forgetting about King Henry VIII. So uh, we have, as we just said, the Calvinists in Switzerland. We have the Lutherans in Germany. These are the Protestants. We have the Huguenots. We should talk about about the Huguenots in France. Those are the French Protestants.
0: No, those are the ones that ended up in Florida.
1: That's right. So they're very good. So the French Huguenots uh, try to escape uh, persecution and wind up in Florida. But we will talk about them next month. Uh, next, next, uh,
0: next I'm, I'm ready to go.
1: Okay, and uh, the other quick observation is that uh, Alexander Hamilton. Whenever I can bring in Hamilton, I always like to mention my man Alexander Hamilton. So his mother's family were French Huguenots uh, who were escaping persecution. And another nice we talked about the uh, the Edict of Nantes. Uh, we, we talked about um, some of the issues having to do with uh, reconciliation uh, and, and the, the French Huguenots. But that's a little bit of background about Hamilton his mother. Now, was- uh, is it?
0: But is it um, uh, for for the audience's sake and my sake? Is it safe to say that uh, the uh, uh, the Protestant Reformation instigates or starts the Protestant movement? Or was the, the schism between uh, Henry VIII and the Roman Catholic Church is the real Protestant, not Reformation, but the real split between the faiths and the creation of Protestant uh, Pro- Protestantism? Is Henry VIII, is he the origin or not?
1: which will answer the question. So Martin Luther, uh, the, the first Protestant, if you will, is 1517 when he posts his uh, – he's not trying to separate the religion. I think Martin Luther is trying to create a dialogue and a discussion. That's 1517, but then that winds up once the Pope excommunicates him, he effectively is starting his own Protestant religion, even if he's not trying to. Uh, so compare 1517 with King Henry VIII, who originally had been recognized as a defender of the faith. He was recognized by the Pope as 1517. Uh, really religious, but when he doesn't get his way, King Henry VIII, he wants to get divorced from Catherine of Aragon. He wants to marry Anne Boleyn, or Boylan, if I'm pronouncing it correctly. So uh, what what King King Henry VIII of England does, and here's the date, 1534. So he separates, he creates the Anglican Church, he separates from the Catholic Church, because he notices that, you know, this has been going on in Germany, and he doesn't have to worry about the Pope telling him what to do if he has his own church under his his, um, auspices of, of his archbishop of Canterbury. So, long story short, uh, the King Henry VIII is after the Protestant Reformation starts in Germany, in uh, Switzerland, and in uh, in Scotland. So,
0: So, in other words, I stand corrected.
1: Well, just giving you some of the flavor. So here is an interesting quote from uh, Catherine of Aragon. So after the divorce of King Henry VIII, and he has multiple wives over time, after he divorces Catherine of Aragon, because the Catholic Church doesn't allow divorces, but if you have your own church, then you can do what you want, which is why Henry VIII arguably separated from the Church of England. So this is a church from Catherine of Aragon, who was the former wife after the divorce, and she says, if I'm reading it correctly, I would rather be a poor beggar's wife. Let's see. Rather, um, you know, to be sure of heaven, rather than the queen of all the world. So that's her explanation for, uh, you know, she's her rationalization for, for even though she's divorced, she's you know got the kingdom of heaven.
0: Well, he also he also beheaded wives. It didn't give him uh, male heirs, correct?
1: I'm not an expert on King Henry VIII. I will look into that, but I know he went through. You might be right. He went through several wives.
0: Yeah, he literally through them. Yes.
1: Yep. Uh, that may be true. So. So this is this is all background, <laughs> excuse me, leading into um, you know these religious differences. So the, the point is that in the 16th century, uh, you start having these uh, religious differences across Europe, and, and basically, if you want to oversimplify, Northern Europe is Protestant in many examples, and Southern Europe is Catholic and not Protestant. Uh, so how does that translate over to the colonies? And what I want to do now we go over to England. and uh, We talked about Henry VIII, but um, you know, Henry VIII, as we said, is 1534. So the American colonies not really start until Jamestown, Virginia, which will be 200 years later, right? So... Um, To give a little bit of discussion of of, uh, the American colonies, I wanted to compare two acts with you. And as people know, I collect a lot of these old laws, these old acts of Parliament. And I want to compare the Jewish Naturalization Act of 1753, which is the first time that Jews are going to be allowed to become naturalized, to become citizens of England, 1753. And I want to compare that with the Plantation Act. So the Plantation Act, because they called, in England, they called the colonies plantations, the American plantations, the American colonies. So I want to compare the Plantation Act of 1740 with the Jewish Naturalization Act in England that applied and started in 1753, and the, the Jewish Naturalization Act of 1753, but they also call it the Jew Bill the JEW Jew Bill, which allowed Jews to become naturalized in England. And uh, <coughs> the, the prime minister at the time was Henry Pelham, and he supports the act because Jews had shown loyalty during what was referred to as the Jacobite uprising in 1754. And long story short, when the British army was fighting in Europe, um, the French uh, were coming to invade. And this had to do with the restoration of the Stuart dynasty, because there had been dis- disputes over who the king would be. So the Stuart line is trying to come back into England, and uh, some of the prime And Jews in England helped and were loyal to the king, and some of the reward, if you will, for supporting and being loyal to the king was that they passed this Jewish Naturalization Act of 1753. And one of the names that stands out is uh, financier Samson Gideon, who had helped stabilize the stock market at the time and supported King George II. And that's who the king was in 1753, King George II. Uh, so the problem was that they passed that act, 1753. There were riots, there was rebellions, there was uh, 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 outbreaks of anti-Semitism. So the following year they repealed the Jewish Naturalization Act of 1753, which was repealed in 1754. Uh, So I don't want to spend too much time on that, but I want to compare it, which is my point, with the Plantation Act of 1740, which applied to the colonies. So the Plantation Act of 1740 allows... Anyone, it doesn't matter if you're Anglican, which is the official Church of England, if you're Catholic, if you're another Protestant denomination, if you're Presbyterian, if you're a Quaker. So the Plantation Act of 1740, and I'll read some of it to you, but it allows any religion, as long as uh, they are willing to say that they're loyal to the King of England... Uh, and here's the language I'll read, it allowed a Protestant alien residing in any of the colonies for seven years to become one of His Majesty's natural-born subjects of this kingdom, this kingdom being Great Britain, right? It allowed Jews and Quakers were permitted to dispense with the sacramental test and could omit the phrase, on the true faith of a Christian, when taking their oath. So Jews wouldn't take an oath on being a Christian, because they weren't. And Quakers didn't take oaths at all, even though they were Protestant. And you had a lot of Quakers you may remember in Pennsylvania area. Absolutely. Benjamin Franklin is an example of a Quaker, and they, they were civil rights activists in their day. The Quakers, so long story short, the question I'm trying to answer is why was it that the the King and England allowed the colonies, the British colonies, the Thirteen Colonies, to have religious freedom, and allowed people to become naturalized even if they're not, um, you know, under the King's religion, if you will, but in in England they wouldn't allow Jews to become naturalized citizens. And I'm going to answer my own question, which is they needed bodies in the colonies. They were happy to have people from all the religions living together as long as the colony uh, was peaceful and as long as it's making money for the king and as long as the system is working. So they were attracting other religions as long as they were loyal. So that's the reason why you didn't have that kind of religious freedom necessarily in England as you started to have in the American colonies. So again, we compared the Plantation Act of 1740 with the Jewish Naturalization Act of 1754. So I now want to move over a little bit to um, to compare the northern colonies versus the We we're going to talk about Massachusetts as a good example of the northern colonies. So the, the northern colonies, using Massachusetts Bay and Plymouth Colony, were founded by, among others, the Puritans. So the Puritans are, a, and I'm not an expert in religion, but they're they're Protestants and they're trying to purify. Um, you know, they're very religious and they've been suffering persecution not because they were Catholic, but because they disagreed with other Protestants in England. They disagreed with the Anglican Church, who they thought was too Catholic, right? So uh, the point is that the Puritans escaped or left England to settle in the colonies, and uh, they were not, and people criticized the pilgrims a little bit, I'm not going to do that, but in their mind, they were coming over the across the ocean to establish and to support the Puritan religion, right, and they were not welcoming, that's the criticism of the Puritans, that they were fleeing persecution, but yet they uh, didn't accept and were not tolerant of all the religious views. So um, I'm using Massachusetts as an example, where you did not <laughs> have much religious toleration, because the Puritans, if you didn't, uh, it's our way or the highway, so others uh, moved to other colonies if if they couldn't get along with the Puritans. Um, Now I want to compare that, though, with uh, some of the more diverse colonies. So we'll start with Maryland. So Maryland was established by Lord Baltimore as a haven for Catholics in 1632. So Maryland had a big Catholic population. And also some of the middle colonies were established, in a way, as homes for religious refugees. So I'm going to mention Rhode Island, as a lot of folks may know, uh, which is uh, true, is a northern colony, but it's closer to the middle colonies. So Rhode Island was established as an experiment, uh, and I'm quoting here, with full liberty and religious concernments by Roger Williams in 1663. And of course, we have to mention William Penn, uh, who was a Quaker. Uh, his father was uh, you know, was owed money by the king, and he says to the king, instead of giving me money, give me land in the colonies. So in 1701, there's the famous Pennsylvania Charter of Privileges written by William Penn. Pennsylvania is named after William So his famous Charter of Privileges recognizes the importance of freedom of conscience. That's the terminology they used back then instead of religious liberty, freedom of conscience. And it provided a home for religious minorities Here it is, to live quietly under civil government, and if you go, I should point out, if you go, anyone goes to the, you can listen to us as you might be doing now live, you can go to the WSQF website and go to the link for Statutes and Stories on WSQF if you want to hear the podcasts, or you can go to, and I recommend people can do both, go to the statutesandstories.com website where you can follow along. Uh, The PowerPoint presentation, which is what I'm reading from, although I'm, taking uh, the liberty to uh, do asides as we talk about things. So we we already have on the website for statutes and Stories a PowerPoint I put together for today uh, talking about the history of religious liberty in America. (laughs) And we can't just talk about America. We have to talk about England and the colonies first. So again, we're rounding up the conversation of William Penn, the Charter of Privileges, 1701. This would be page 8 of the PowerPoint that we're going through. So it recognizes the importance of freedom of conscience and provided a home for religious minorities, quote, to live quietly under civil government. And I'm smiling that if people get a chance to look at the website and read the actual text of these... Laws and proclamations that we're going to be talking about, and constitutions. The spelling is very different from what we expect today. So I'm mentioning here that civil government is spelled C-I-V-I-L-L because they didn't have Webster yet to give us the common spellings. Uh, so that included Quakers. So William Penn was all about religious freedom. Uh, so they were comparing the northern colonies versus the middle colonies. All right. So now skipping ahead, I want to go a little bit south, which is South Carolina, and South Carolina was arguably the richest colony richest by means of the average white person uh, who was a slave owner, uh, was very wealthy, and Charleston was a very wealthy city um, <laughs> during the colonial period. Uh, but it was started with a very elaborate charter, as the way I described it, a very detailed charter written by John Locke. And John Locke in England was the philosopher, the Enlightenment philosopher, about natural rights. And John Locke was a favorite philosopher of Thomas Jefferson. we always talked about other nights. In fact, the Declaration of Independence borrows from these ideas of natural rights, so here I'm, I'm paying homage to. John so, Bob, but so right. you're saying the United
0: States borrowed these ideas too, of natural okay, rights. It again. That the United States also borrowed the idea of natural rights.
1: Absolutely. The Constitution borrows from the Declaration, and some of these ideas come from Locke and some of the other philosophers we've talked about on other nights, but here, just to focus on Locke. So in 1669, he is hired to write the charter for what's going to become the colony of South Carolina, (laughs) which was an investment to try to make money. So he writes the document for the investors and for those who agree to go over to settle in, in South Carolina. So I'm skipping ahead to Article 97 of this very detailed charter written by John Locke says as follows, provides protection for heathen Jews, heathens, and other dissenters. So if you're not an Anglican, if if you're a Catholic, then you have protection according to Article 7 of what's called the Fundamental Constitutions of South Carolina. That was the name of the document he wrote, the Charter, the Fundamental Constitutions of South Carolina, Article 97. Article 107, and I quote all this on the Statutes and Stories website, provides, quote, no person of any other church or profession... Shall disturb or molest, it's interesting how they use the word molest, shall molest, so you shall not disturb or molest any religious assembly. So you've got these detailed religious protections built into the fundamental constitution of South Carolina written by John Locke. That's the same John Locke that kids learned about in school. Um, so now I'm going to quote Voltaire. He's the French philosopher, not an English philosopher. He reads and learns about the fundamental constitutions written by Locke. It's a wonderful quote of what Voltaire, and Voltaire is most famous for talking about freedom of press uh, and the freedom of speech. So Voltaire says the level of religious tolerance, uh, he's complimenting South Carolina. He says, um, he writes about South Carolina to say, quote, cast your eyes over the other hemisphere, because if you're in France, the other hemisphere would be North America or South America. So cast your eyes over the other hemisphere. Behold, Carolina. He doesn't refer to it as South or North Carolina. It was just Carolina. So behold, Carolina, of which the wise Locke was the legislator, because Locke wrote the fundamental constitution of South Carolina. So, Locke, uh, you know, obviously was helping to establish and write the charter, the constitutions. Voltaire well, is praising it, but um, I, I have to point out that uh, as, as much as there's a lot to be said for the constitutions of South Carolina, the fundamental constitutions, uh, I'm going to get two little criticisms. The first criticism has to do with the fact that uh, it does not outlaw slavery. So, Article 110 of the Fundamental constitutions of South Carolina uh, permitted slavery, so that would be a criticism I would have for the constitutions of South Carolina. Well, how popular
0: was slavery for that to be so?
1: I'm sorry, say that again.
0: How popular was slavery at that time for that to be so? So early on.
1: So this is a southern colony, or will be a southern colony, and
0: uh, so in other words, slavery was uh, was a tool of, the, of business right from the get-go. For it to yep. yeah, for That's it right to be. Uh, sanctioned in the Constitution, that means slavery was already um, an element of business.
1: I'm agreeing with you, and I'm not going to criticize Locke, because he's working probably with what he's given. So he's able to you know draft it, but uh, he doesn't have the authority to draft whatever he wants, because it has to be approved. And I'm assuming, and one of these days I'll research that, the slavery in the Constitution of South Carolina, written by John Locke. So I think you know that was something that he had to do because of the investors and those that were involved in that project. Okay. I, don't want to, I don't want to criticize him for for it, but I will criticize that they allow slavery in South Carolina. It would take the Civil War, obviously, to get rid of that. Um, So the other thing I'm going to point out is, although the fundamental constitutions of South Carolina recognize, and I quoted you, Article 97, that it protects Jews, heathens, and other dissenters, and again, Article 102, no person or church shall be disturbed or molested for or religious assembly can't be bothered, basically. Um, there's an explanation of the rationale. So the rationale for allowing religious freedom isn't so much uh, that religious that we like these other religions. Instead, the, the rationale that's given, and, and I'll read it to you, is uh, Jews, heathens, and other dissenters centers, um, you know, we want to protect them.
0: Now, what were, Hedons, uh, what were Hedons considered back in those days, the same as today?
1: That's a good question. So a good question, you know, huh? To them. I'm not saying this in a derogatory way. But, uh, I mean, I right. think
0: of a heathen as a Democrat. What do you think of a Hedon? <laughs> uh,
1: I won't answer that. <laughs> there I, come on, I had
0: to hit you with one, Adam, you know? Well, go ahead. That was,
1: uh, <laughs> In the discussion I'm going to read to you, they're probably referring to anyone who's a non-Christian as a heathen. That would include the uh, Native Americans, in their mind were heathens. And it would refer to anyone, possibly even Catholics, as heathens.
0: Um, How dare you? (laughs) Again, we're we're talking
1: about the line in 1669. Uh, From one Jew to a Catholic, how dare you? So what they're trying to say, though, is the reason why they were giving religious freedom is not because they were holding up religious freedom as an ideal, but instead – and I'll read to you. um, Let's see here. So here we go. That that may not be – we didn't want these others, the Jews, the heathens, the dissenters, to be scared into Christianity and kept a distance from it by force. You don't want to force them to do it, but instead, this is the key, by having an opportunity of acquainting themselves with the truth and reasonableness of its doctrines and the peacefulness and inoffensiveness of its professors. So in other words, attract them to, if, if, if you know, South Carolina is going to be primarily Protestant, right? attract them to the Protestant religion by showing the good things about the Protestant religion rather than forcing people and describing against them, attract them on the merits, as opposed to forcing them, uh, use the carrot as opposed to the stick. That was the approach, uh, you know, the way that these provisions were defended. So, long story short, uh, I do want to give credit to to South Carolina for giving, in Article 97 and 102, protections for Jews, heathens, and dissenters, and uh, no person of any other church or profession shall be disturbed or molested. So that's in 1669, written by John Locke.
0: Okay, Uh but wait, time out here. now. these are considered um, to be voted upon by, uh, like, a a Congress within the colonies? Is there, is there any kind of elected body that approves this, or was it just sanctioned by a monarchy from wherever John Locke uh, believed that need to be approved? It's an
1: excellent question. So it was a charter written by Locke with the investors, and then it was granted by the King of England. Okay, American.
0: so yeah, so not an elected body here on uh, in the colonies.
1: Cool. And then it did have limited self-government in the colony for those who came over. And that's, uh, that's a good question, I Manny. That's a conversation for another day about what the early government looked like in South Carolina. But you know, my only point is to, is to uh, you know, emphasize that uh, you know, John Locke, who is a hero, an Enlightenment thinker, was involved in writing for South Carolina their constitution early on, which did have religious freedom. Uh, so this is one of the first constitutions to ex- expressly, explicitly mention it. So that's the South Carolina, the famous fundamental constitution of South Carolina. And you did not see that. I gave the example of Massachusetts. Massachusetts and Plymouth Colony and Massachusetts Bay Colony were intended to have uh, you know, Protestants that are of the Puritan denomination, if you will. So they were not interested in attracting uh, other religious points of view and religious minorities. And then when you compare that with New York, which we'll talk about, uh, you know, New York is an example of a very pluralistic, from a religious standpoint.
0: Yeah, because they started off with the Dutch.
1: That's right, exactly. So let's talk a little bit about New York, and hopefully we'll have enough time today. I want to make sure that I mention um, I, I had not known much about the Flushing Remonstrance. So before the end of the night tonight, I want to make sure we save some time, or it will continue next week, the Flushing Remonstrance. And Flushing, of course, is a city in Queens. And in 1645, I'll give this as an example, um, the handful of settlers that were already living in Flushing, Queens, were able to convince the, the leaders in Holland, because it was a Dutch colony, uh, to give them a charter in 1645 when Flushing, New York, was founded, when the Dutch controlled the area. Uh, That gave them liberty of conscience, the same terminology you heard before, liberty of conscience according to the custom and practice of Holland, without molestation, same language, or disturbance from any magistrate or ecclesiastical minister. So Flushing, the city of Flushing, when it was founded again in 1645, uh, had religious protections built into the charter of that one little city in Flushing, which is a north than the northern part of Queens.
0: Now, uh, did the Dutch Indian Company already ha- establish its corporate stamp on Manhattan at this time, by this yeah. time?
1: Yeah, so, good, good question. So, England, um, you know, had other colonies, but the Dutch had this area, and I don't want to get too ahead of ourselves, which is in the New York area, and that's exactly right. That's the, the Dutch West Indy Company. If I'm
0: not Yeah, they own the entire island of Manhattan.
1: Right. So if if you wanted to ask about it, um, the question is, what was the date? Which I think is what you're asking. So Manhattan was purchased from, this is a separate conversation, but purchased from the Algonquin Indians. Yeah,
0: for a bunch of rifles. What a deal, huh? It's like shopping at Walmart.
1: I think the reason why the Indians, when I see Indians, Native Americans, the Algonquin tribe was was selling the land for $24 of trinkets and beads, whatever else they got, uh, some metal pots, whatever the case may have been. That was 1626. The big, the, the best land deal in the history of... Uh, of, of mankind. <laughs> of mankind. So, uh, buying Manhattan for $26, $24. Yeah. That was 1626. Uh, now, you're right, that was the Dutch West Indy Company. Yes. And I think the Indians didn't... Up- and that man. ship, by the way, just...
0: Uh, uh, entered the London Harbor for the first time. <sighs> wait, wait a second. Yeah, the Dutch Indian, sh- the original Dutch Indian company's f- ship has just entered the London Harbor, I think last month for the first time since then. Wow. How about them apples?
1: You'll have to send me a link. I'm not aware. So that was a quick uh, huh. reenactment. Haha, <laughs>
0: Trump Adam. How about that? <laughs> I go ahead, continue. Back.
1: We we teed up the flushing remonstrance. And we'll talk about that later. But just so we know, Flushing is in Queens. They start in 1645, uh, having some religious liberty in their little city, Flushing. Uh, and then when that gets challenged, they they issue what's called the Flushing Remonstrance, and people went going to jail. So we'll talk about that if we have time later. So where where are we now? We're talking about uh, New York, which was originally Dutch. Uh, and because of what we'll talk about later, New York is an example of lots of religions: Quakers, Jews, Catholics, and others living together in harmony in New York. And we'll talk about that later.
0: It's funny how the the, the New England colonies are the real Yankees, and yet New York has the New York Yankees. So what's going on there? That's I mean, the well, do- I that
1: in Boston wasn't the Yankees. And we could, that's of- yeah, isn't
0: that amazing? That's yankee And that's, <laughs> uh, that's for another day, I guess
1: could argue, maybe you're making the argument, Matty, that the Knickerbockers are the Knicks as opposed to being Yankees. Yes. Uh, so we'll talk about that later. So I want to talk now about uh, an example of how Massachusetts uh, you know, was not religiously uh, tolerant. So this is 1782, and, and I think you just made this point. I'm, I, I give a quote, and I give pictures of it. Whenever I quote a lot of these uh, old statutes, I give pictures of them so people can read it themselves.
0: By the way, announce it, uh, StatuesAndStories.com, Adam Levinson's site... Uh, you can read all of what he's talking about every night that we have this show on Mondays. You can always go to to the the post at statuesandstories.com. Continue. And
1: I hope to follow along if I put, put it up on the website. So this is going to be page 11 of the PowerPoint presentation that I'm working off of. So I give the example of the Act Against Blasphemy, and I smile here because they spell blasphemy, B-L-A-F. P-H-E-M-Y. You would not win a spelling bee by, by spelling it that way. But this was adopted in Massachusetts in 1782. So here I want to make the point that the act against blasphemy adopted that's pretty late in American colonial history. 1782 does the following. It punishes blasphemy. What is blasphemy? If you say something against God, right, or if you blaspheme, a uh, one year in prison. So if you, uh, and then blasphemy, you know, if you don't define it, it can mean different things for different people, right? If you curse, is that blasphemy? So one year in jail this is massachusetts 1782 has thrown people into writing a law for one year in prison
0: No, in other words you were sent to jail for god damn it basically
1: right. one year potentially one year in jail was this act passed in 1782 that's after the american revolution right so we fight a war with britain right, over freedom, but yet in Massachusetts, and this is the point I was making, that, you know, the spirit of 76 is referred to as John Adams and Sam Adams and John Hancock, the spirit of 76 this is, you know, the freedom and fighting for liberty, but yet they're not recognizing religious liberty as late as 1782. So I say that's a little surprising, I found it, as in, and you can look at that actual blasphemy law, 1782, but that makes the point about how the northern colonies are not about religious freedom. It's the middle colonies, and uh, and we talked about South Carolina, too, that are recognizing religious freedom. So um, I I also make the observation that the northern states enforce religious restrictions. So blue laws, Connecticut's famous where it's blue laws, that we're not going to sell alcohol on, and we're going to be closed on Sunday. So it was very common to have early on these religious restrictions in the northern colonies, including Massachusetts and uh, New Hampshire, Vermont, et cetera. Um,
0: And and, in those times, it's instigated by men. But we are to revisit that as soon as we give women the right to vote, what do they do with their right to vote? They've supported prohibition. And they Even screwed the, the whole place the whole, whole place up. Come on, man. Oh god. All right, go ahead. I just you know, a little tangent there, but it just you had me thinking. Okay, go ahead. <laughs>
1: I'm sorry I'm interrupting. So <laughs> excuse night. me. Two months ago or so, yeah. we talked about the 19th Amendment, which uh, allowed women gave them the right to vote in federal elections, and the 18th Amendment, which was prohibition. So we talk anyone can go to the website, listen to the podcasts, and, uh, and I believe we did that uh, about two months ago.
0: Yes, we did.
1: Go to stories dot com, and you can read about uh, the 19th.
0: And these Amendment. recordings are also on the Statutes and Stories tab on WSQFradio.com. dot com.
1: Absolutely. So all kinds of things people can uh, learn about and and read. So now we're going to skip ahead from Massachusetts in 1782 with this blasphemy law as an example of uh, not being religiously tolerant in the northern states, we're going to skip ahead to the Declaration of Independence. Actually, we're skipping back a little bit. Declaration of Independence is 1776. So, what does Declaration of Independence say? Uh, everyone knows. This is Jefferson, his aspirational language, which is very poetic. We hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their Creator. So, a reference to God, the Creator, in the Declaration of Independence, with certain un- unalienable rights. That among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. So. the Declaration of Independence is recognizing that men are created equal, that there is a creator. The Declaration also says at the very end, when John Hancock signs in his big handwriting, he's sticking his neck out by having such a big signature. Anyone who is signing the Declaration, this is a traitor, right? It it ends by saying, with a firm reliance on the protection of divine providence, we mutually pledge to each other our lives, our fortunes, and our sacred honor. That's how the Declaration of Independence ends.
0: And everybody ended up broke? And a fugitive. <laughs>
1: uh, some of them was put a lot of money into the. And they yeah, were Robert Morris. Didn't
0: Robert Morris end up living under a tree?
1: <laughs> Robert Morris wound up uh, getting bankrupted and the yeah. hero. Um, So that's the Declaration of Independence, so they recognize the importance of providence providence and religion in in the Declaration. And I want to skip now, that same year, Declaration of Independence, 1776, this is another topic we're going to move on to that we've talked about on other nights, the Virginia Declaration of Rights, 1776. So uh, you mentioned George... Morris, I'm now going to talk about George Matt Mason, M A S O N. So George Mason was one of the founders, he doesn't sign the constitution, but George Mason in seventeen seventy-six actually helps write the Virginia Constitution, which was the first of the states after the Declaration of Independence. The states had to create their own constitutions. Virginia is the first to do it. It's the largest of the states in seventeen seventy-six. So George Mason drafts the Virginia Bill of Rights and uh, it was principally drafted by Mason and he had assistance from Madison and some others. And what I'm going to read you, (laughs) excuse me, from Article X-5-1, which is Article 16 of the Virginia Bill of Rights from 1776, and later this becomes a model for other states to use. So why am I going to read it? And the answer is religious freedom is written into the Virginia Declaration of Rights in 1776 as follows. All men are equally entitled to the free exercise of religion. Notice the terminology free exercise. Exercise of religion according to the dictates of conscience. And if you go back and rewind where we started today, we were talking about dictates of conscience because conscience is the way they would describe freedom of religion. So George Mason gets credit for drafting the Virginia Declaration of Rights which is the first state constitution in 1776 to recognize an, across an entire state, freedom or new state, after Declaration of Freedom of Religion. So now we're
0: gonna... An expression thereof, I suppose.
1: I'm sorry, say it again?
0: And an expression thereof, so not only uh, a lot of people think that freedom of religion is just the assembly of faith, but how about professing faith that that needs to be protected, not just attending church
1: again, free exercise of religion, however you might do it, yes. for, according to the dictates of conscience. And um, maybe we'll explore what that means a little bit later. Uh, but now we're going to move to 1787, another topic we've talked about in other evenings, the Northwest Ordinance of 1787. So our Constitution doesn't get written until 1789, is when the Constitution, 1788, it's written 1789, it takes effect when it's ratified. Uh, it's written, the um, Constitution's written 17, that's famous summer of uh, 1787, it gets ratified 17 takes effect 1789. sorry, I gave the wrong dates. So that same year that the Constitution is getting written, over that summer of 1787, that same year, the Confederation Congress, this is under the Articles of Confederation, writes the Northwest Ordinance, which is a very important ordinance written by that early Congress, which was based out of New York. And I'm going to read to you from Article 1 of the Northwest Ordinance, which dealt with the areas that we took over from England after the war. So the Revolutionary War, we got not not just our colonies, but we kicked England out of all the land to the Mississippi River. <coughs> Although they kept some forts near Michigan and in the Northwest. And that would require the Jay's Treaty to get the English out of those forts. So the Northwest Ordinance is, the issue is, will other territories come in as states? And how will they come in? What happens until they become states? But without answering all those questions, I just wanted to focus on religious liberty. So the Northwest Ordinance gets credit for Article 1 that says that no person shall ever be molested on account of his or her mode of worship or religious sentiment. So it's worded a little bit differently, but the Northwest Ordinance recognizes <coughs> freedom of religion, what I call freedom of religion, they shouldn't be molested or discriminated against on account of his doesn't say there his mode of worship or religious sentiments and many I'm going to take a drink.
0: Yeah, you need a Tic Tacs. Serious Tic Tac there.
1: <laughs> okay, sorry for that everybody. So that's the Northwest Ordinance 1787 and not all the states and I gave the examples of the northern states didn't have great religious protections. So the Northwest Ordinance, which covers the territories that will come in, the territory of Tennessee, <coughs> and the areas of Ohio, et cetera, have better religious protections under the Northwest Ordinance than some of the northern states have. So we are now moving to the Constitution, written the same year as the Northwest Ordinance. And tell me, what is the uh, – it's not a true question uh, – <coughs> in our Constitution and our Bill of Rights that deals with religious <laughs> liberties.
0: Um, you know, it's, well, it's really a one for sure. Um, uh, there's also ten, 10, right? Or 10 or 12.
1: <laughs> All right. so
0: please, uh, You beat me. You got me. In other words, did I flunk?
1: <laughs> no, no, you, you did good. So the <laughs> Constitution's good. written in 1787, and we talked about the Federalists and the Anti-Federalists that uh, you know, some wanted to do a Bill of Rights, but the Constitution itself doesn't have the First Amendment. That's only going to come around a couple years later, 1789, after the Constitution, that they agree to do the Bill of Rights. So the First Amendment, and here's the part where I like to trick people, but Article 3 of the Bill of Rights, when they originally drafted it, was what we consider today the First Amendment, because there were two amendments before the First Amendment that didn't get adopted originally. So it's actually the third article of the original Bill of Rights that is today the First Amendment. So I'll just read you from the First Amendment, which is an amendment to the Constitution, and it says, Congress, quote, shall make no law respecting an establishment of religion, which means you can't have an official government religion. You can't have the official one and only religion that you recognize there's no establishment of religion, or you can't do a law prohibiting the free exercise thereof. So those are the two Freezes in the First Amendment dealing with religion, the Free Exercise Clause, and the Establishment Clause. So that's in 1789 when the Bill of Rights is written. Uh, that was drafted by Madison, and of it doesn't get ratified until 1791. And as we know, that was drafted by the, the, the First Congress, which met in New York. And when we talk about the Constitution. It's also useful to mention that the Constitution does have language, which is still useful. For example, Article 7 of the U.S. Constitution has – and this is not – the Bill of Rights. This is in the body of the Constitution. Article 7 says, quote, no religious test shall ever be required as a qualification to any office of public trust under the United States. So that's telling us that the Constitution says any person from any religion uh, you know, can be elected or can vote because we're not allowed to have religious tests. And that was put there, among other reasons, by the Quakers, right? Franklin is a Quaker. We're not going to discriminate when someone, if someone gets voted into office or wants to vote. They are a citizen, no different than anybody else, and that's in the Constitution, Article 7, I'm sorry, Article 5 is Roman, V plus 1 is Article 6. So Article 6 of the U.S. Constitution and Article, originally Article 3, but now the First Amendment obviously has the protections for religion. So that's what happens with our new federal government, and I want to now take a little bit of a discussion about a very famous, because I love Hamilton and Washington, a very famous letter that is written by Washington uh, to what's referred to as the Toro Synagogue, and this is in Rhode Island. And uh, everyone may remember that Rhode Island is one of the holdout states. It was the last state to ratify the Constitution. And at this time, we're trying to make sure that the Bill of Rights gets ratified. And after Rhode Island ratifies the Bill of Rights, Washington decides to take a trip around the country, and the Bill of Rights was pending ratification in Massachusetts, and Connecticut, and Georgia, and Virginia.
0: So I assume and he does this on horseback or horse and carriage.
1: It's a good question. I need, he might. He was a good horseman, Washington.
0: So yeah, so might, it was probably just horse.
1: Horse himself, but he may also have a carriage if he wanted to. Take yeah, a I ride. just want the
0: audience to have a visual.
1: So, and he was very famous as a very qualified expert horseman. Um, so the point is that uh, you know he's trying to lobby, in a way, to promote the Bill of Rights, and he's going on a tour, a grand tour, around the different states and visiting was very popular tour. In fact, I know, and I mentioned this on page 24 of the PowerPoint, that he's touring with — he's accompanied by Secretary of State Thomas Jefferson, by the governor of New York is George Clinton, and a uh, future U.S. Supreme Court justice — actually, he may have been a Supreme Court justice at the time — John Blair. So. Mm-hmm. Washington's traveling. He goes to Rhode Island to Newport, which is a big city in Rhode Island, and he writes a letter to the—there's an old temple or synagogue, a Jewish synagogue in Rhode Island. And I'm going to read you from this very famous letter that Washington writes where we've got this new country, we have the First Amendment, we have the new Constitution. So uh, when I say new country, the new federal government. So this is reading from the very famous letter that he writes uh, to the uh, residents of Newport, and this is Newport in Rhode Island. Um, This is what the letter says, quote, For happily, the government of the United States gives to bigotry no sanction. You've probably heard this before. To bigotry no sanction, to persecution no assistance, requires only that they who live under its protection should demean themselves as good citizens in giving it on all occasions their effectual support. That's Washington written and I'm going to research if Hamilton may have helped him write it. Uh, on August 18th of 1790 is the letter that he writes to the Jews of Newport. Very famous letter that that congregation uh, treasures and every year they read it. Uh, so that's the letter and it represents the idea of religious freedom in America. That in The First Amendment uh, we mentioned Article 6 of the Constitution no religious tests. Uh, so this has built upon the Virginia Bill of Rights and built upon some of the other things we're talking about. Uh, We can't mention religious freedom, by the way, without mentioning Thomas Jefferson. So Thomas Jefferson page 23 of the PowerPoint. So Jefferson, um, as early as 1776, um, had considered and supported and sponsored a bill for naturalizing Jews, Catholics, and other non-Protestants to become citizens of Virginia, but that did not pass the Virginia House of Burgess. That's their, their legislature, the Virginia House of Burgess, was not adopted in 1776. Eventually, that gets adopted in 1786 as the Virginia Statute for Religious Freedom, and, and, and Jefferson was very PROUD OF HIS STATUTE THAT HE WROTE FOR RELIGIOUS FREEDOM IN VIRGINIA, ADOPTED IN 1786. IN FACT, ON HIS GRAVESTONE, I WILL HAVE TO QUOTE IN FRONT OF ME, HE DIDN'T WANT IT TO SAY PRESIDENT OF THE UNITED STATES. Instead, his Tombstone says, you know, the author of the Virginia Statute of Religious Freedom, and he was the president of the University of Virginia, so there were other things he was more proud of than than being president, so that's interesting. Uh, I'll also point out to you Washington's farewell address. Uh, Washington uh, understands the importance of religious liberties, and... um, you mentioned and we're comparing some of the states. So after the Constitution was adopted, which prohibits religious tests, that only implies at the federal level, right, states can still do what they want, and this gets to the issue of federal supremacy, but no federalism. States can do what they want unless they're told otherwise by the courts. So Delaware, Pennsylvania, and South Carolina, after the Constitution was written and the Bill of Rights was written, and Georgia, so we mentioned those again, Delaware, Pennsylvania, South Carolina, and Georgia eliminated restrictions on religious freedoms for for, uh, Jews and for non-Christians. So those states stepped up and got rid of religious tests, uh, but not all the states did. So the ones that were holdouts, believe it or not, which is surprising. Rhode Island waited until 1842 to get rid of religious tests. North Carolina waited until 1868, which is after the Civil War, to to get rid of religious tests. Also, New Hampshire waits until 1877. And I prove that to you on page 26 if I'm reading it correctly, of of the PowerPoint, or I'm sorry, page 20 of the PowerPoint, where um, I I give you copies so people can see it, of the New Hampshire Constitution, and I I let you see that, uh, because I have a copy of an 1854 copy of the New Hampshire Constitution, says as follows, quote, that every member of the House, meaning the House of Representatives in New Hampshire, shall be of the Protestant religion. I cite from the Maryland Constitution and some of the others, Maryland, um, Change its constitution eventually to say that if you're a Christian or if you are a Quaker you, and I'll read it to you, Jews do not have to declare their belief in the Christian religion, only, quote, declare their belief in a future state of rewards and punishments. So if you didn't want to make a, if you didn't want to swear about any particular religious denomination, you just had to say that, you know, you declare your belief or state your belief, rather than taking an oath, declare your belief in, quote, a future state of rewards and punishments, as opposed to affirming any one particular religion. So that's a little bit of background about how it took another 50 or so years, in some cases, later before some of the states that had religious tests to to eliminate those tests. All right, let's look at the time. We have about 10 minutes. So I'm not going to talk about Lincoln because I've got some great information about Lincoln. We'll save that for next week. And I'm going to now pick up where I promised, which is the... Flushing Remonstrance. So we talked about how in 1654, going back in time, Flushing, the city of Flushing and Queens, when it was Dutch, had this very unusual provision in their constitution in Flushing's, their charter, which provided that liberty of conscience, according to the custom and practice of Holland, you should not be molested or disturbed by any magistrate or ecclesiastical minister. So what's the background there?
0: Well, let's start off with the actual word. Uh, What's it derived from? I don't really even know what it means. Flushing? And you said a word that's flamants. What's that? <laughs> All
1: right. So the, the name of the city was Flushing, and it started as a Dutch city. Okay. So the other word that you
0: mentioned was a Dutch word?
1: So it's a remonstrance. Let me explain what the, rem- what
0: the rem- That's what I don't understand. I don't think the audience does either.
1: to the definition of remonstrance. Uh, but what I'm, when we talk about this document, which I'm going to praise, the Flushing Remonstrance, what the heck is this? And there's a stamp about it. The, the American stamp was issued. Uh, so the Flushing Remonstrance is referred to as the Magna Carta of the New World. You could also refer to it as the First Declaration of Independence. I think that takes it a little bit too far. So what is the, we're building it up, what is the Flushing Remonstrance? So when the Dutch controlled New York, Peter Stuyvesant was the director or the governor, if you will. He's the boss of the Dutch colony of New York. And he did, decides in 16th, in the 1650s, uh, let me see if I can read it to you, that he, he puts in place a requirement, he makes an order, and this is the date, 1656, he issues an order to all of the Dutch area in New York that it would be illegal to hold religious meetings, uh, and he's banning the practice of religious meetings outside of the Dutch Reformed Church. So the Dutch Reformed Church is the official church of, of Holland. And believe it or not, in Holland they allow religious freedom. It was a religious country, but they allowed; they were open to uh, to different religions as long as they all got along and paid taxes. So Peter Stuyvesant gets this idea in 1656 <laughs> to make it illegal to hold religious meetings that aren't meetings of the Dutch Reformed Church, which is the established church of the Netherlands. So the problem was that his decision, to this order that he issues 1656, um, as I said, flouts the tradition of religious tolerance in the Netherlands. Um, and remember, the Netherlands had Calvinists, they had Catholics, and the Netherlands is trying to unify. Instead of having religious fighting, they're, they're coming together as a country. And Peter Stuyvesant is an anti-Semite, and he's a bigot, and he's uh, only looking out for the Dutch Reformed Church. So what ends up happening is, remember, in 1645, this is 20 years earlier, we pointed out how Flushing, which the, the Dutch name for the city was spelled V-L-I-S-I-N-G, but apparently when the colonists would say Flushing in Dutch, Dutch, and I'm butchering and I'm sure, it sounded like flushing. So that's how the blessing or again, whoever they said it in Dutch, became flushing. But the point is that 1645, they had good protections in their charter, and now Peter Stuyvesant, who's the governor of the entire area, is saying that, no, you're not allowed to do this. So the people in flushing write a this is the remonstrance. They write a letter to Peter Stuyvesant, and I'm going to quote some of it. So these 30 residents of this small settlement of Flushing request an exemption from his ban on – he was dealing at the time with Quaker worship. And there are a lot of Quakers who are trying to travel through that area and hold their Quaker ceremonies. Uh, so <clears throat> when we talk about this document now, the Flushing remonstrance, it's an early precursor, precursor to the Bill of Rights. In fact, in 2007 – it was the 350th anniversary of the Flushing Remonstrance, which was written in 1657. And so what, is it, what do they do? These 30 individuals and leaders of the community get together, they write a letter to Peter Stuyvesant, and they say, uh, respectfully, they try to explain to him, and I'm going to read it to you, that uh, we want religious freedom in our area in Flushing, because that's what our charter says. So let me read a little bit to you from, and uh, it's got beautiful language in it, and the spelling's a little unusual, but it says, we desire, therefore, in this case, not to judge lest we be judged, neither to condemn lest we be condemned, but rather let every man stand or fall to his own master. We are are bound by laws to do good unto all men, especially those of the household of faith. I think that's wonderful language, the household of faith. So the the members of the community in Flushing, Queens are saying, we're not going to listen to you respectfully. We want to make sure we protect religious liberty. So what is the governor of or the leader, the director of uh, the New York, or at the time it was New Amsterdam. What does Peter Stuyvesant do? You want to take a guess,
0: Manny? I have no idea.
1: <laughs> Peter Stuyvesant, as I said earlier, was an anti Semite, and he was a, I'll be careful describing it, but he was, uh, he, he did not want religious liberties. Let me read you more of what they write. They say, <laughs> you have, and they're very polite about it. They say, and I think it starts by saying, you have been pleased to send us a certain prohibition or command that we should not receive or entertain any of those people called quakers because they are supposed to be by some seducers of the people for our part we cannot condemn them in this case neither can we stretch out our hand against them for our christ god is a consuming fire and is fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living god so they're basically saying to peter stuyvesant we're not going to listen to your restrictions because i'll read some more but the love of law peace and liberty uh, should extend to Jews, Turks, and Egyptians as they are considered sons of Adam. They spell sons, S-O-N-N-E-S. So this letter that they write from Flushing, this little tiny area in northern end of Long Island, uh, to the governor, Peter Stuyvesant, explaining that you know, we want to reflect and, and observe religious liberty. Don't We don't want to judge other people, basically. So what does Stuyvesant do? And the quick answer is uh, he uh, is not happy about it. He arrests. There were 30 people who signed that Flushing Remonstrance, they'll get arrested, and um, what, what ends up happening, he keeps them in jail, and the guy who, who wrote it, uh, <laughs> well, most of them, once they're being threatened with arrest, most of them recant, but uh, and I'll give you the names now. The writer of the Remonstrance, his name is Edward Hart, H-A-R-T, which is not a Dutch name, and the sheriff of the town of Flushing, his name is Tobias, F-E-A-K-E, and uh, Even though they were being thrown in jail, they refused to recant. And after about a month, they basically relent and they they agree because they're starving only on bread and water. Uh, And their friends and family go to Peter Stuyvesant, petition him on behalf of Hart, who was the elderly gentleman who wrote the Flushing Remonstrance. And uh, after some time, eventually they get pardoned, but they get banished from 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 the area and prevented, they get banned from holding office. So what happens to Stuyvesant? quick answer is that Peter Stuyvesant, uh, a year or two later, uh, he claims that he's not being discriminatory. His argument is that he's not violating the freedom of conscience, only the right to worship outside of family prayer meetings. So Stuyvesant's view is, yeah, if someone wants to be XYZ religion, they can do that. They just can't meet, and they can't uh, carry on and profess their religion publicly. They have to do it privately. So that was Stuyvesant's position, which, of course, we all disagree with. Uh, So he proclaims in 1658, a year later or so, a day of prayer for purposes of repenting from the sin of religious tolerance. So just to give you some idea about Peter Stuyvesant, he wants people to do a day of prayer to repent for being tolerant. So he still refuses to recognize religious tolerance, Uh, 1662, so this is four years later, an individual named John Brown, spelled B-O-W-N-E, if I'm doing it correctly, B-O-W-N-E, he was a farmer and he allowed Quakers into his house. Uh, He was arrested brought before Stuyvesant, and uh, he refused to uh, to agree that uh, to atone for it, and he was sentenced to banishment. So you have another farmer, not a Quaker, wound up getting banished, so he, instead of leaving to go to one of the other colonies, he goes to Holland, this farmer, John Brown, or John Bowne, and uh, John goes to the Dutch West India Company, and he rats out Stuyvesant, and he convinces the Dutch West India Company, uh, and, and others in the area write letters to, you know, say, this. If you're not going to make money, Dutch West West India Company. If uh, you're violating people's religious rights, which had been promised to them, uh, so they write to the Dutch West India Company. And long story short, the the bosses in in Holland. Um, right back to Stuyvesant, ordering him, and this is where we'll end, so the Dutch West India Company, uh, even though they consider Quakerism a, quote, abominable religion, they overrule Stuyvesant in 1663, they order him, quote, to allow everyone to have his own religious beliefs. So that's how uh, the Dutch the company, the Dutch West India Company, tells Stuyvesant let people do what they want to do, uh, and the story ends in 1664, when the British captured New York, and it's no longer going to be Dutch.
0: Wow unbelievable so and the dutch pretty much play no other role in the new world other than their influences upon new york and that area correct cuz they don't go farther north and don't go farther south or is that
1: right. they had some some colonies in the, in the islands in the caribbean wow that's a... that the islands where hamilton grew up and we'll talk about that in another in another discussion uh, so uh, curacao
0: yeah aruba
1: Right, so they've got some colonies there. But other than New York, the other colonies are, are English colonies. And I'll point out to you, Stuyvesant also gets into trouble by um, expelling Jews. And they also write to the Dutch West India Company. So we'll talk about that next next week. And I'll point out to you that this there's the, a series of wars between Holland and the English. And when the British fleet sails into New York, because Stuyvesant was so unpopular, the, the colonists that were Dutch and even the English who were living there uh, refused to rally around him and uh, because he was unpopular and they disagreed with a lot of his policies and basically they just surrendered. They didn't even fight. They surrendered to the English. The English take New York and that's during the second Anglo-Dutch war when the English take control over New York and it's never been the same since, which was a good thing. Um, so that's uh, where we end today, that uh, the English take over New York and uh next discussion will lead up with uh, some additional acts, the Toleration Act of 1689. We didn't get a chance to talk about that in England. And uh, next week, we're mainly going to talk about, in Florida, religious freedom in Florida, which is a very interesting conversation. And, Manny, do you want to talk to me real quick about um, uh, some of the early settlements in Florida?
0: Well, uh, the the pronunciations, they all seem to occur between uh, St. Augustine and, and uh, Jacksonville, and they're... Uh, the first colony, where would that be? Just north of uh, Jacksonville on the East Coast. What is that known today? Um, I think you call it Saint More, but I, I wouldn't, I wouldn't know exactly where that is today. But it's safe to say that the Spanish were here first. Okay, so English only can wait a bit. Okay, and that's the end of our shows here at Statues and Stories. Please reach out to uh, Adam Levinson on his his website, StatuesAndStories.com. This recording will be on WSQFRadio.com under the Statues and Stories tab. And we'll be starting the the new decade here at same time, same place, 7 o'clock, 7 to 8, here on WSQF Blink Radio. So stay free, my friends. And Adam, thank you very much.
1: Fantastic talking next week about uh, Florida and the Spanish and religious freedom in Florida. Thanks, everybody.
0: Take care. No one knows what
1: it's like to be the bad man, to be the sad man, behind blue eyes.